be seated. It is good to be together and uh, so glad that you're here. Thank you for braving the snow and ice. It's just that when I got up out on Mount Scott Boulevard at 5.30 this morning and was trying not to be an accidental uh, bobsledder down the road, uh, I thought, you know, it'd be really good if the pastor could be there. So I, uh, I called Danae or texted Danae and said, you know, you can have first service if you want to, but I'm not sure I'm making it. So anyway, so glad that you're here. And what, uh, you know, what Amanda said about the us, it's the perfect setup for what we're going to talk about today. And I, I thought about changing what we were going to talk about today because of the snow and ice, because I want everybody to hear this in this series called Love Thy Body, uh, because this is the core principle. This is the core thing that explains every single controversy that we face in America and in the West today. It, 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 I know that's a big order, but this is the core of it. This is the, the main part of the series. This is the main explanation. If we get this, we're going to understand how to live with joy and hope in the world that is going crazy, okay, if we get this. And uh, so I thought about punting it, but then I thought, no, you know, these dear people tried and did everything they could to get here in the snow and the ice, so we're going for it, and I uh, just want to let you know uh, that you can tell your friends to uh, listen to it online or something if they say, what in the world was he talking about last week, because it, 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 it'll filter on through the next weeks. And I have to say that the, the uh, clearest expression of the problem and the issue that we're trying to attack today uh, is, uh, was stated to me about a year and a half ago by a man who is uh, not only my mentor, but he's helped me in my spiritual faith uh, for the last three and a half decades. His name is Dr. James Houston, and I had the chance to interview him in his home up in Vancouver, B.C., uh, because uh, he, he knew C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you knew that, that I kind of like C.S. Lewis. Yeah. But Actually, I interviewed him because he was a, a, a colleague of Lewis's back in the Oxford days, back in the 50s and 40s. And uh, so uh, I'm a part of, or I work with the uh, Wade Center, which is in Wheaton College, which is the archives of Lewis's stuff. And now this conversation is published and on their shelves, uh, finally. Uh, but in the course of that conversation, he said something that really articulates the, the issue that is at the core of what uh, our problems, just about every controversy we have in our society today, goes back to this. Here's what, here's what Houston said, and I'll explain it. He says, if one was to say what was the strongest message that Lewis was trying to convey, he told me that himself. In 1953, when I saw him, and I knew that he was going to Cambridge, and I might not see him again, and I was getting married, you, you never see anybody again after you get married, um, <clears throat> So I said, what has been the most important message that you've communicated in your writings? Well, he said, against reductionism. And that might seem like a small phrase, it's just, oh, reductionism, what is that? What he's talking about is the reduction of everything under, into man's control, into human beings' control. He's talking about the reduction specifically of the human person, ultimately, and that the reduction of a person, the denigration, the dehumanization of what it means to be a person is the problem we're facing today. It's what we're experiencing today. And then Houston, after this, talked to me about how for the rest of Lewis's life, for 10 more years, he lived 10 more years to 1963, died on the day that JFK died, by the way, in November 1963. Uh, but Lewis, or, um, Houston from that day even forward, has lived for the authentication and, and, and the, the care and the application of God's love to every single human person. And what does it mean to be a person? 
And now Houston's 96, and he's been living this way all this time and is about ready to pass the baton. That's just what made me kind of go, hmm, boy, he's passing the baton pretty quick here. And, and let me just sort of succinctly as, succinctly as I can state the big idea, okay? Here it is. Reducing the human person by demoralizing, and I don't mean like demoralizing like you're hurting my feelings. I mean taking away the morality of, or the value, the moral value of the human body has led to every other social crisis of our time. And you might say, well, you know, What's the big deal? I mean, why is that a big deal? Well, just think of it this way. We're starting to see the ramifications of that now. Uh, For example, in the elite places, the elite universities and colleges, some people, some philosophers and some scientists are starting to talk about what's called transhumanism. And that's got nothing to do with gender. It has to do with melding human beings with technology. The cyborg stuff isn't so far away according to these people. In fact, uh, you, you hear people talking about AI, uh, artificial intelligence. Well, that, they say it's about 10 years away. The problem with that is our morality and our ethics haven't matured enough to be able to handle that. They're, everybody's kind of in confusion about this because they feel like it's coming. Even, even Vladimir Putin, you know, the president of Russia, He's made the statement that whoever invents hard AI, what's in, your, what's in your phone right now is soft AI, but whoever invents hard or strong AI, real AI, uh, artificial intelligence, will rule the world, according to Putin, so he's put his scientists on it. I mean, that, that's, that's the denigration of a human being. You know, will, will, the, will the AI human beings be more powerful than the rest of us, and what does that mean for the rest of us? It's just crazy. I know it sounds like sci-fi, but that's what they're talking about in the Harvard's and the Cornells, and the Columbias now. But then another, we don't even have to wait that long. This week, or, or this month, just a few weeks ago, for example, the New York legislature passed a bill that changed the meaning of what it means to be a human person. Don't know if you heard about this. But they passed a bill in, the, in their legislature in New, York, in New York State, and they were, so, uh, they were so excited about this bill that they were laughing and clapping and crying and all this kind of stuff that they got it through. It's, Kind of weird, but here's how they define in this bill a human person. A person is a human being who is born and alive. That's simple. What's the big deal about that? Only thing is, is that got enough holes in it, you could drive several Mack trucks through it. And here's the other big thing. That bill, the reason they had to redefine a person was because that bill was a bill to say that you could abort a baby right up until the due date, right up until the birth date. If the labor pains start and they decide they don't want it, you can kill the baby. So if you're unlucky enough to be that baby that is taken out, you're not a human person because you didn't get born. You got aborted. So, I mean, you, you can begin to see how this is a big deal when we, de- when we take away... Um, the moral value of a person, including the body, that begins to make this sort of a cascading problem throughout society, which raises a second question. How did this happen? Because this is fairly new. I mean, it hasn't been that long that people would actually believe this stuff. But more and more people, more and more people are kind of even thinking less of their bodies, okay? 
Because God never intended it that way. I mean, in, in the beginning, up until just a few years ago, everybody kind of had a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, uh, at least in the West, of what a, what a human being was, what a person was, what a body was. In fact, it goes back to the very beginning of time in Genesis chapter 1. Remember this? Genesis 1.27, it says that God created mankind in his own image. So we're made in God's image. In God's image, he created them, male and female, he created them. In other words, he, all of us have God's stamp, have, have God's form, have God's, and the, God actually created us. You see, that, that, that's, that's what everybody believed from the beginning. I mean, just take from, uh, for example, the founders of our country. And I know there's a lot of talk and a lot of truth in it that the founders of our country were not Christians. People, people want to say, well, we were never a Christian country. Ah, that might be true, but we have been a, Christian, a, a country that is held to a Christian worldview from the beginning. I mean, you, you, all those guys that uh, signed, the Const- or signed the Declaration of Independence and came up with the Constitution, many of them were deists. Deists believe that God's out there somewhere, but he's got nothing to do with us. Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the, um, the Declaration of Independence, was an agnostic. He, he took all the stuff out of his Bible that he didn't like, and it was a very small piece of Bible that he had. And uh, Benjamin Franklin was such a philanderer, he'd make JFK blush, especially when he was in France. He did, we won't even talk about it, but he did bad stuff with his body, okay? So that, that's all true, but it's also true that Jefferson said and Madison said in the Federalist Papers that unless we hold to a Christian view of, 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 of the world, this republic won't last, They didn't say in those words, but that's essentially what they said. In fact, Jefferson put it in his, in in the Declaration of Independence, the preamble, remember? We believe these truths to be self-evident. Remember that? That all men are created equal, men being generic man, and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, right? It's new. It's new that we're doing this. Just even a couple decades that we are reducing the value of a person. And on top of that, for those of us who are are Christ followers, who are believers, this goes to the very core of our faith. This takes out the power of our faith if we denigrate what it means to be a human person. Because a human person in a human being body, a certain human body, became an ex- is at the center of what we believe. And after all, if you think about it, that's probably what the purpose of this, all this, you know, dehumanizing that's going on is really for, is to kind of get at that faith. But here's what it says. John, John is saying something um, that is very similar to what's going on in our time. He's fighting something very similar to what's going on in our time when he wrote his gospel. And on, on the first page, above the fold of his gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this. The word became flesh. What is flesh? That is a body. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. So there's somehow, somehow him being in the presence of a body, there's somehow connected to God's glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And apparently that's something to do with our glory too. Now the difference is Jesus, obviously, he's fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully a human being. But you gotta have the value of both or it doesn't work. He can only save what he has assumed upon himself. That's what the early fathers and the early creed writers would say. 
He can only, you can only save, you can only redeem what he takes on himself. That's, therefore, he has to take on the full measure of what it means to be a human person. And, and, and it's almost ever since then, ever since the fall, there has been sort of this, this effort to sort of split the body and the human uh, and, and the spirit, or the body and the soul. For example, when, Paul, when, when John sorry, wrote this gospel, he was fighting the Gnostics. And you know what the Gnostics believe? It was an early heresy that keeps coming back and back, just called secularism today. The early Gnostics said, you know what? You know, Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. His spiritual body was there, but the body is bad. You know? and, and that's not Christian, that's, that's Platoism. That's, that's platonic. That's, that's, you know, splitting the body, the, the, the natural order, the physical order from the spiritual order. That is the core of the greatest heresy that has ever been foisted on the earth. And it just keeps coming back, this kind of splitting. In, in fact, uh, Nancy Piercy, in her book, uh, Love Thy Body, which we took the name for, from that book for this series, she does an excellent job in the first chapter, an amazing job, of giving a metaphor, giving a word picture of what this, of, of the series of splits that's happened in the last 20 years, what it looks like. She reaches back to a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer. Maybe you remember him. I think Chris talked about him a few weeks ago. Uh, he was, his, one of his books was one of the reasons I became a Christian, okay? And maybe some of you remember him, uh, you know, if you're as young as I am. But he, uh, he died in the early 80s. But he had this, uh, back, as far back as the early 70s, he wrote a book called uh, 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 The Battle Against Reason or something. Now I'm losing it. But he also wrote another book called He Is There and He Is Not Silent. And he used this both in, in both of these books. The, the God of Reason, that's what it is. And, and so he, he, sa he says, the world and the way people are thinking today is sort of like a two-story building. And we've separated out two things. We've, we've separated the value uh, uh, in the metaphysical world, we've separated that out into the top story, the value of life, and, and the meaning of life, and then we've tried to say anything below on the bottom, the observable is just stuff. So we've kind of split it apart. Piercy makes a good point in saying, you know what, after Schaefer died, it moved on to become a fact-value split. We're going to put facts in the bottom, and we're going to put values at the top. So the values can be whatever we decide we want them to be, the facts and what we observe in this world, you know, the observable, that, that's just, that's another thing altogether. But what transpired, you could kind of see this coming, what's transpired in more recent days is something, and I know this is heavy lifting, but stick with this, It's something that uh, people in colleges and universities, and if you're headed there, you're going to hear this, and your kids are going to hear this, and your grandkids are going to hear this, and that's why I'm telling you about it. It's called personhood theory. And personhood theory takes this two-story split and applies it to human beings. And here's what it says. A person has the moral and legal standing, okay? So my decision-making, my feelings, that's why we're so tied into feelings today, you know, and don't hurt my feelings because I get to choose what my truth is and I get to choose what's valuable and so forth. So the value, it's, it, because it's not tied in any way to the observable, which is your body, which is expendable biological organism. So you see, if you split those two in half, you can kind of see where the culture of death came from, can't you? Because it's just expendable material. This is just mad, and this is expendable material. No matter what age it is, whether it's born or not born, 
Whether it just kind of you know, it's just observable stuff. It's just protoplasm. The only problem is nobody can actually live that way in their life and with their body. It just doesn't fit reality. Nobody can pull that off. And the problem is bizarre things happen when you split the person from the body, when you split the, split the person from the stuff that we live in. Bizarre things like the lady a few years ago, uh, it was, um, was post-2015, I can't remember the exact year, she's in Seattle, and she went to the judge and says, you know, there's a building in downtown Seattle that I just love. I really like it. And I'd like to marry it. The judge said, well, it's your right, so go ahead. So apparently she married the building. Which brings up, I mean, we had this joke when I was in sixth grade. I thought it was a joke. I never expected it to become a prophecy. But the joke was, oh, you like that building? Why don't you marry it? You know, I mean... The bizarre things that happen when you do this splitting in half, you see? That, that somehow the, the two don't connect, that's the problem. And what keeps driving this, this is, we're, we're, we're at the earlier stages of this split, but what keeps driving this split are, are the um, intellectual elites and the lawmakers in our land. And let me just mention two of them. One of them is a man by the name of Peter Singer. He's an ethicist at Princeton University, which is bizarre because Princeton University was started by Puritan Christians. Jonathan Edwards was the president of it at one point. And, and Singer actually is an Australian. I'm sure he's a, a, an uh, American citizen now. <clears throat> if he's not, he should be deported. But um, that he, he, uh, he's, he loves to shock people, okay? And he, he loves to say things like, a baby and a mosquito are equal in value until the baby can reach the point of consciousness. What's that? Well, Peter Singer gets to decide what that is and where that is. But here's what, here's what he said. He said, the life of a human organism begins at conception, but the life of a person, see the split? A being with some level of self-awareness does not begin so early. So when does it begin, Peter? Whenever I say so. It keeps moving. The arbitrary separation of the human person from the observable, the line keeps moving about when that happens. Another, another speaking of uh, lawmakers, people who are not supposed to be lawmakers but make their lawmakers, the, the, the reality of the split between the human person and their body, the denigration of a person, it started decades ago. It started with uh, something that the Supremes said. And I don't mean the singing group. I mean the Supreme Court. In 1973, in the Roe versus Wade decision, Justice Blackmun, who wrote for the majority opinion, said this about a human person in the body, in the, the fetus or the child in, inside the mother's womb. The word person, as used in the 14th Amendment, does not include the unborn. If the suggestion of the personhood is established, then the fetus has the right to life and would be, then would be guaranteed. You see the difference? Split? Not a person. It's protoplasm. That's where it's, this thing all began. Which begins to make you wonder, okay, if that's true, then that splits the image of God in half, doesn't it? 
Again, you can drive a Mack truck through that definition of a person. You can just put, put people in their place, put stuff in. You can, you can just kind of tear it all down, what this image of God means. You can also tear down other things in the Scriptures uh, in our faith, like when Jesus says the number one command, the most important thing that you need to do is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, without your, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Saw that last week. Mind and strength has to do with your brain and your muscles, doesn't it? So you see, the, Jesus has a holistic, complete view of who that person is, and every part is just as valuable to him as every other part. You see, if we're going to make this split and say, well, our mental capacities and our consciousness, and that that's where the real value is, but the body, it's not so valuable, it gets personal for me. Because in 2017, my mom died. And she died after nearly 18 years of struggling with Alzheimer's. And the last eight years, she didn't know who I was, and she didn't really know where she was for most of that time. So was she a person? Did she have value? I don't really want to follow any faith, secular or not, that doesn't say she does, that says she doesn't. You know, so that's, that's the reality. Those are the stakes of what we're talking about in this series. It's, it's part of this sort of process that happens in every generation and in every age. And Francis Schaeffer himself pegged it long before it really got to its extreme nature. Back in the early 80s, the late 70s, when he and a man by the name of C. Everett Koop, who wrote a, who wrote a book together uh, called uh, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, Koop became the Surgeon General later under uh, Ronald Reagan. Here's what uh, Schaefer says about this process of continually splitting this and splitting that and splitting the next thing. There is a thinkable and an unthinkable in every era. Things which most people begin today find unthinkable and immoral, even unimaginable and too extreme to suggest, yet since they do not have some overriding principle that takes them beyond relativistic thinking, when these become thinkable and acceptable, like in the next generation, most people will not even remember that they were unthinkable in their generation. They will slide into each new thinkable thing without a jolt. That's something that should wake us up. And, and, and that's also something that should encourage us. If we are awake to this, maybe enough of us get the voice out to, about what this is and, and begin to real, see every single human being that we come in contact with as valuable and made in the image of God, that could begin to change some things. Maybe there could be a renewal in the heart and the mind of our, 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 our country and in our, our world and in, a, in this cultural moment, if you will. You see, the Scriptures, <clears throat> the story of salvation the real story of salvation, the Satan has been trying to counterfeit that forever. Ever since Jesus died on the cross and he couldn't keep him in the tomb and Jesus rose from the dead, Satan's been trying to counterfeit it with another, you know, counterfeit salvation story. Somehow get salvation in man's own hands, human beings' own hands. Every heresy that comes along is an attempt to put the salvation story back in our own hands. Uh, for example, just look at some of these scriptures here that have to do with how God views the body and, and how the salvation story, how the body, uh, the person's body, the human being uh, was viewed there. Look at this in, in Matthew chapter 27. This is Joseph of Arimathea took down Jesus' body 
and watch the care here, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. In other words, he carefully took it. He requested it at his own risk because Joseph was a Pharisee. He could have gotten creamed, but no, he wanted to take care of Jesus' body. Did he expect Jesus to rise from the dead? I doubt it. He just knew that he loved Jesus and that part of Jesus was that body. And he wanted to take care of it. In fact, he loved Jesus, but the people that hated Jesus that got him killed, the Pharisees, just a few verses later, they're afraid of the body. Look at this. Verse 64. So give the order, this is the Pharisees talking now, give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. (laughs) They apparently believed that that was Jesus' intent, or that's what he meant when he said he was going to raise. And this last deception will be worse than the first. You see, they feared it because they knew if you have a body, oh man, you got some big problems. They would have some big problems. But we could go all over the scripture, but let's look at just one more place in terms of your body and God's view of your body. Regardless of how you like your body, God loves your body. Look at Paul in in, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality or being used for all these horrible things, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you think, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Your body is a member of Christ himself. When you look in the mirror and you, you see that dimple you wish you didn't have, that mole, that annoying mole right there, that belly fat. In another era, it would have been beautiful. Just un- remember that. But God looks at that and he sees beauty. He sees his image. He said, that's mine. That body there, including that, and that whole person right there, that's mine. Which raises the question, did Jesus ever come across and did he ever do any teaching about a person, what it means to be a human person and how he felt about that? What I would say is, yes, one, one story from the Scripture in John chapter 11, keeps going through my mind as, as we've been getting ready for this Love Thy Body series. It's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus. His friend Lazarus, who had died, and when he got there, people said, hey, you know, if you'd just gotten here earlier, but Jesus says, I know, well, this is happening so that God's glory will be seen. What's God's glory? Well, we don't find out till the end of the story. But I want to read for you, not the section of where Lazarus is raised from the dead. I encourage you to go back and read the whole story because it's a long story, but, but just, just want to show you something that a set of verses where Jesus' reaction to this whole business shows up twice in, in a set of verses, starting in verse 32 of John chapter 11. It says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. And remember, Jesus loved 
Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Come see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Huh. God of the universe wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? That's a rhetorical sentence that's meant to be answered with a yes. Verse 38, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb, and it was a, a cave with a stone that was laid across it. Take away the stone, he said. And we'll just leave it right there, let it hang. But did you catch the two times Jesus reacted to the whole situation? What does it say? It said he was deeply moved. Now, that's English, and it really doesn't pack the punch of what the word is. It's actually one word in the Greek language. It, if you, if you, uh, you know, say exactly what it means, it means to snort in one's spirit, which to us is like, yeah, that's great. I heard that last night when I was sleeping. But that's deeper. It's deeper than that. It's, it's like the racehorses who are ready to go, and they're snorting. It's used to horses all the time. It can also be used for anger. Oz Guinness in his book, Dust of Death, said Jesus, this, this word, uh, deeply moved, means that Jesus was outraged. He was outraged at what had happened to his friend. Why? Because death is not supposed to be normal. The denigration and disintegration of the body is not supposed to be normal. That's why God has been spending his whole salvation history reversing it and making it work backwards to life so we get new bodies in the end. And, and the reality is, it, this word is hard to interpret. In fact, it can mean several different things with different nuances. Let me just list off about five of them. It can mean Jesus was angry at death, death in general, death of his friend, that he was moved by their confusion, that he was moved, he was frustrated like, oh man, can't you see? I, I, it, this, this isn't what you think it is. Or that he was frustrated by the attitudes of the earthbound people. Like, you know, it's a, you know, if you just fix this, then we can go on our merry way and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Or he hates to see what death does to the body. Or he hates to see people he loves hurt by the evil of death. You know, as I was looking around in commentaries this week, trying to figure out exactly, what, you know, kind of where to make this thing land, it suddenly dawned on me, and it dawned on one of the commentators I read. It's like, maybe it means all of that. Because if the God can create the human body, he can create human being, he can create who we are, and he can hold it all together. He can certainly hold that all together and have all of that deeply in him from this visceral reaction to that. But I want you to see the visceral reaction because there's got to be a body. When in John chapter 12, Lazarus' body must have been important because in John chapter 12, the very next chapter, all these people come flooding into Jerusalem and flooding in to <clears throat> see where Jesus was. You know why? Because Lazarus was following them around, and they'd heard that a dead guy had been raised to the life. Now, if he was just a spooky guy and said, there he is over there, and no, I can't see him. No, there he is over there. Would people have followed Jesus? with? No, they would have thrown him out. They would have said, that's ridiculous. They wanted to see a body, a living body, with a human being, all wrapped together with that body. You see, this is the core of our faith, isn't it? This business about resurrected bodies. I remember my first year in seminary. It was a while ago. I won't tell you when, but it was in the 80s. But 
first year seminary had an Old Testament class, and the professor there was a really, really nice guy, but he was really, really wrong and liberal and theologically, and I wasn't my own sweet, lovable self that I am today. I tended to go kind of go after stuff like that. And so one day in class, somebody asked him something. I can't remember what it was, but it was toward the end of class. And somehow he went to the New Testament and the resurrection, and he said, well, you know that many scholars, even here in our city where we were, I won't mention which city, he said, you know, many scholars are starting to say that Jesus didn't bodily raise from the dead. He spiritually raised from the dead. Right away, my hand went up. And he was not looking. I was in the back of the class. He was not looking at the back of the class. He said, oh, look, time's up. So we left class, ran up to him. I said, hey, man, did I just hear you say? That's how he talked in the West Coast before I got to seminary. Hey, man, did I just hear you say that Jesus, you're implying that maybe you agree with people who say Jesus spiritually rose from the dead, but not bodily? He goes, well, no, I'm just thinking this through with them. And I go, ah, I said, just, okay, forget all the theological stuff, man. What about the practical thing? What, how in the world, after Jesus' death and he goes in the grave and, and, and then the church starts, how do you think it's going to get off the ground? I mean, who in their right mind would, number one, follow a spook? You know, just some spirit floating around. Who would die for that? Who would die especially for someone who had said they were going to raise from the dead, and then they tricked him and go, I'm just kidding, it's just my spirit floating around. And he goes, well, I don't know, and walked away. And then he gave me an A, so I couldn't really follow up on it. Nice guy. In fact, I told him, I said, man, I, he says, anything else you want to tell me? And we had this oral exam, and I said, I just wish you weren't such a nice guy. And he said, oh, thank you. I said, okay. Um, but the reality is, if you don't have a person, if you don't have a resurrected Christ, but that extrapolates out, we'll see that in a minute, if you don't have a living person, either with Lazarus or with Jesus, then you, living in a living body, then you've got no Christianity, you've got no faith, and you've got no church. We wouldn't be here. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then we're not raised from the dead, bodily raised from the dead. He makes that very specific point. If that's not true, then we are of all people to be pitied because we're just believing a bunch of fooey air. We're just believing a bunch of hocus-pocus, and we're following a bunch of air. It makes no sense whatsoever, but if that is the tendency of the secular progressive narrative, the secular progressive salvation story. Because you see, every time a heresy comes along, it's an alternate salvation story, and this one is not a very good one at all. Basically, it says life is, you're just a blob you got some decisions you can make here, but then it's all over. Just behave yourself while you're here. Because every time that comes along, every time salvation is put in the hands of human beings, it's not in the hands of all of us. It's in the hands of the few people with the power. It's like, again, C.S. Lewis said in Abolition of Man, which was the, the series of lectures he was prompted to give when he first was just driven by this reductionism of the human being, of the human person. In there, he says, what we call um, the power of nature is actually 
the power in the hands of a few people that is used as an instrument or a weapon against the other people. And that is what we are facing in our world today. So here's where the long and the short of it and all of it comes together, okay? This is what I really want to share with you. It's the hope. The hope in the New Testament in the midst of this time, in this cultural moment in which we're living. Do not believe the lie. Don't believe the lie. Teach your children and your grandchildren not to believe the lie. The lie that somehow God doesn't love all of you, that somehow it's not all of you that's saved, that somehow it's not all of you that is that precious human being that is you. Because all kinds of evil are foisted upon people when that is believed by the general populace. And when that is believed by us, things like body shaming happened, happen, including shaming our own bodies, right? Or um, celebrity culture that says, oh man, if I was just like them, never mind that their lives are a mess, but somehow if I just look like that, if I just had that, you know, you know it, it's, it's a disconnect. Or people do horrible things and demeaning things to their own bodies, that's the lie. And God has so much more for that. In fact, it's at the core of the gospel. It's at the core of being a resiliently joyful Christian in the world today or whatever world we live in. Nothing's changed in that regard. Nothing, this isn't new. It's just the diff, the, what's new is what, how we, the world we have to live in with it. But it's, it's still, the joy of the Lord still is our strength. In fact, Paul, when he gives his magnum opus of what the gospel is in Romans, when he hits the apex, when he hits the top of the mountain, when he hits the, the top of his argument in Romans chapter 8, he deals with this very matter of the value of you and me and everybody you lay eyes on and everybody you and I love. The value and the, the love of God for you and all of us. He mentions that, including the body. Look beginning at verse 8, or sorry, verse 22 of Romans chapter 8. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope, we were saved. Two things. Redemption of the body. You know what redemption means? It means, if you're going to put it in its most literal sense, to buy back. God has been buying us back. Jesus went to the cross to buy us back. And it's not just us. It's the whole creation, it says in verse 22. 32. 22. Laser vision hasn't kicked in yet. That's what it is. It's the whole creation. You see, when in eternity, you get to have a new body. I get to have a new body, but I, you know, I hope this is good news. I'm going to still recognize you, and you're going to still recognize me. So it's not that different. All the beauty of who you are and all the beauty of who I am still going to be there. Still going to be there. You know that... I, I don't, I'm not going to get into mustache hair and all that. But they, 
all of you are will still be there. In fact, the, the, the way the Bible maps out the, the end of days is that there's going to be this new heaven and this new earth that we will experience with our body, soul, spirit, all that we are. And, and it'll be, they'll be melded together. It won't be just heaven's way up there, you know, I'm going to take the elevator up and so forth and so on. No, it's going to be, it's, heaven's going to come down to earth and it's going to be a new earth. And here, I believe, I, I agree with my friend Randy Alcorn. I think this world, all the beauty of it, all the things we love about it, because God made it so incredibly beautiful, it's all going to still be there. Thank God for that. It's just that your bodies will be able to enjoy it to the full. I'm, I, I don't have scripture for this, but I am looking all over, and I'm going to continue to look for that verse that tells me I'm going to get to ride with my body a 75-foot wade on a surfboard. That's, what, that's the, I don't know if that's going to happen, but I, I know that that kind of, oh, my word, I'm probably not going to care about that at that point. But oh my goodness, what a wondrous thing it is. That's why it's important for you to realize that when God saves you, he's saved all of you. When he has redeemed you, he has redeemed all of who you are and all of those people you love. But Paul doesn't end there. He gets eloquent again verse, over in verse 35. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's a good question. Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Notice the physicality of each one of those things. Can any of those physicality things separate us from God? Can it separate us as a person? That's, I think, what he would say today. No. Or he would ask today. Verse 36, as it is written, for, for your sake, God's sake, we face death all day long. You know, it's, you never, any moment, because we live in this world. We are considered like sheep to be slaughtered. Notice sheep, I'm going to come back to it. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Don't you love that? In all of these things, and in, in this present cultural moment, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. None of that can separate us. None of it. Notice it says we're more than conquerors, but that's right after he says we're sheep. There's kind of a mix. I think there's a little bit of humor here in what Paul's saying. You know, we, yeah, we can't pull this off on our own, but God loves to reach into the most unlikely and the, the you know, the, 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 the part of his creation that's been most affected by sin and just turn it on its head right in front of the devil's nose. Just make them amazing creatures. So we're sheep conquerors. I, I, I took care of sheep one summer out in Corbett. I learned something real quick. Sheep are dumb, for one thing. They, they travel around in pockets just like a kid's soccer team, you know, a preschool soccer team. And, and then, you know, the outs, if they're in danger, and then the outside ones get kind of picked off, but that's not good. That, but the other thing is, is I can't imagine a sheep like in armor, a, a warrior sheep, because they, they can't even run. Have you ever watched them run? They don't have, they don't have knees. They just go like this. Or, or like, at least and, 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 and I think there's a little humor here. It's like God, he's saying, you may think less of your body, but God sees beauty there. You may feel like just a stupid sheep here to be slaughtered, but God sees you far differently. No, you're more than a conqueror. 
In fact, verse 39, there's nothing in all creation. What that means is nothing that's created can get between you and the love of Christ. I'm going to call the band out here, and I want you to think about that. Your professor who screwed around with your brain cannot stand between you and the love of Christ because he or she is a created thing. Your, um, that person at work who continually nags you about your faith or that person in your family who does the same at family gatherings cannot separate you from the love of Christ, so relax. They're a created thing. The, all of those things that you think make you ugly, God apparently thinks they're beautiful. But not only that, that can't separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing that happens to you. And I'll say this, and I want to say this carefully because it sets us up for what we need to say, and we need to say this at some point. If you're a person who has the memory of an, aborted, uh, an abortion in your mind, something you've experienced, God even says that cannot separate you from the love of Christ. That he has taken care of that too. I believe that. that he's, I do believe that's a child. And I believe that he's taken care of that child. And there's the potential for a reunion one day. And it's going to be a good reunion. Because of God's love, Christ's love is that pervasive for the whole of every human being that has ever been on this planet. Nothing in all creation, no created thing, not even yourself, can say, you know what, I don't, once you're a believer in Christ, it's going to separate you from the love of Christ. God's love is on every person you lay eyes on, and I, if we start thinking that, even the people who are the secularists, even the Peter Singers of the world, even the Supremes of the world, if we just begin to realize that he has died for all of them and that nothing can keep his love from continually coming after us, that changes a lot, doesn't it? And it frees us up to live in the joy and the hope of who we really are, which are people created, persons, fully human persons, created in the image of God for whom he came into that very image in his body to save us. So don't believe the lie. Live for the truth. Let me pray for us. We can all pray together. If there's somebody here, you know there's something you need to talk to God about, about something maybe you've been wrestling with. You just ignore what I'm saying and you pray it. And God can handle multiple prayers at a time. Heavenly Father, I thank you and I love you for showing us of how you value us. And I pray that you would help us translate that into our feelings about ourselves, yes. But you would help us translate that into the feelings, our feeling uh, uh, about how we see and view other people. People in our circle of relationships and the people we love, but also the people outside that. And may you give us the grace that we talked about last week, the grace that you had when you came full of grace and truth. May you give us that I thank you for being here this morning. I thank you for whispering in our ears, there is nothing that will separate you from my love. So therefore, live like a conqueror. 
over all of those things that come at us in life. Whether it be disease in our body or a struggle in a relationship or whatever it is. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've overcome all of that and you will overcome all of that in us. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here and I thank you for every person who's here. Pray for our whole church, wherever they are today, that you would nurture them and speak this kind of truth and love into their hearts and minds too. It's in your name we pray. Amen.